Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. When I interviewed freelance photographer and journalist Andrea Hadamaki a few months back, we were chatting off the air, and she told me about a wonderful ranch in Argentina, Estancia Ranquilco. After cruising through their website, I wanted to learn more. I contacted the manager, TA Tom Carrithers, and it's off-season at the ranch. So now joining us from Northern California to tell us more about Estancia Ranquilco is Tom Carrithers. Good afternoon, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. It's a little bit warm here in the Central Valley, but I'm inside now, so it's all good. Yeah, good. I was looking at, am I pronouncing that right? Is it Estancia Ranquilco? It's Ranquilco. Ranquilco. Estancia Estancia Ranquilco. People who listen to this podcast knows I never pronounce anything correctly. I'm I'm not sure what it is in my brain that just freezes (laughs) up. So I'll just apologize in advance for butchering the name. This is just such a wonderful place. It was hand-built by a man named Hugo Ment... I'm going to mess up his name too, sorry. Hugo Monterola. And he spent like 30 years working on this place. Can you give us a little bit of history about the ranch? My dad bought the property in 1978. At that time, there was only a few older buildings. That It was uh, originally a homestead, so it had some old adobe buildings and you know, some fruit trees and a barn and stuff like that. And then as soon as my dad bought it, he had a large stone lodge built, and he hired a company to come in and, and do that. And they brought in Hugo as the foreman on that job. And he was also the the main stone worker shaping all of the stones for the outside of the building and arches over the windows and the fireplaces. And so he spent three years building that house with a crew of 10 guys, mostly just by hand, mostly with materials on hand, you know, that were there, like the stones and, and stuff like that. Wow. And when that job was done, he stayed on and worked for us for another 30 years. We got along really well with him. He loved being out there. Uh, he was a guy who was from the country, had wanted to be you know, part of a ranch and working in the country. He had grown up with cattle and horses and goats and sheep and all of that. So it was a really natural fit for him. So he stayed on and built many other buildings for us, built many beautiful hand-carved stone fireplaces and he also had quite an artistic touch and my dad also had a real creative vision so the two of them worked really well together and just kind of adding a little bit of creativity and artistry to a lot of the work that's been done. What drew your father to that place? My dad had grown up just in a small town in Ohio but his grandfather took him to a fishing lodge in Montana in the Bob Marshall Wilderness several times when he was young. And that just sparked in him an interest in wilderness and fly fishing and ranches and horses and big, wide open places. And so he was always drawn. And he had bought and sold a few different ranches here in the States and started a business. And then by the end of the 70s, he was kind of looking to get farther out. He wanted bigger skies, uh, more freedom, more wildness. And so 
he was traveling around the world to different places, and he was also a very avid fly fisherman. And Argentina is a, a major destination for fishing. So he had gone there on a fishing trip and just really fell in love with the everything, the landscape, the people, the culture, the abundant red wine. <laughs> <laughs> and so he started looking for a place. And then he just got really lucky, actually, because a lot of these uh, estancias don't really come up for sale very often because they pass from you know one generation to the next. But yeah. our place was owned by these two brothers who didn't have any kids, and uh, one of the brothers passed on, and so the other one didn't want to do it anymore, so he put it up for sale. Wow! And it, is it true that it is a hundred thousand acres? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. What kind of area is it in? It's it's Argentina, but there are there are many climates in Argentina. Yeah. There are definitely. We are in the Andes. So we are actually on the far western side of Argentina, right up. Our land actually goes right to the border with Chile. And the, the border between Argentina and Chile is the continental divide. It's the highest point along the entire spine of the Andes. And so our land is three different parcels. One is out kind of a ways out from the mountains. That's the lower land where the cattle and the horses and other animals are in the wintertime. And then we kind of have the middle area. That's where the lodge is. And that's where a lot of the animals are in the summer. And then we have some high mountain land that goes right up to the border. And that's where the, the animals are in the middle of the summer, some of them. And that's also where we do our high mountain pack trips and stuff like that. Mm. So it's semi-arid grassland. There's not a lot of forest. It's, um, yeah, it's quite dry, but we have a lot of groundwater because the Chilean side of the mountains gets dumped on with rain and a lot of that percolates through. So we have a lot of springs, beautiful rivers, lots of creeks. So even though you look around and it's it is quite dry and not a lot of trees, not a lot of greenery. There is a lot of water. So we're actually, we're super lucky in that regard. And is it essentially a cattle ranch? Yeah. Cattle ranch is, that's the main business of the ranch. And that's what it has been ever since way before my dad bought it. Very cool. And when you said your dad wanted to get out there, I was looking at some of the instructions on how to get to the Estancia and could you just give my audience an idea of we're in the United States right now. If you wanted to get to the ranch, you're getting really off the grid. And could you describe the maybe one or two of the paths? There's many, but one or two of the paths to get to the ranch. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long trip, that's for sure. So coming from this from North America or from Europe or anywhere, you generally the easiest way is to fly into Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina. It's usually an overnight flight. So you arrive in Buenos Aires in the morning. And then we usually uh, recommend to anyone coming to just spend a night there because it's, it's a long trip to get from there to our place. It's easier to just spend the night. And then the next morning, you can start super early in the morning. You take an hour and a half flight. Uh, that gets to a city called Neuquén, which is the capital of our province. And then it's a five-hour drive from there west, getting up into the mountains. And I have a, a guy that has been working with us for many years. That you know He'll pick people up from the airport and bring them. Mm-hmm. We have it all actually kind of streamlined. But then you, know, you get to the end of the road, and then our guides meet you there and get out of the trucks, and you get up on horses and load suitcases and stuff on mules and then it's a three-hour ride up and over a pass and then down into the valley where the actual lodge is i love that mm-hmm. this is yeah. that that means you know you're on a vacation when you've gone through that absolutely it also just creates a great feel when you're out there and 
you know, there's no cars coming and going. Uh, you're just there. And the only way to get out of there or get around is on a horse. And there is another way where you can go into Chile and then take a bus over the Continental Divide. Have you ever done that trip? Yeah. Yeah, I've done it a bunch. You, you fly into Santiago mm -hmm. and then you can take a flight or a bus from there down to Temuco. And then from Temuco, there's a bus that goes up and over the Andes. It's a beautiful bus ride. And then once you get to the Argentina side, the driver can meet you there. And then it's a from where the bus drops you off, it's about a two and a half hour drive to the end of the road where we meet you with horses. So that's another uh, beautiful way to go also. And is there, uh, you know, my, my mind just goes to, to movies like Romancing the Stone where you're going through the jungle on a rickety old bus overnight. Is it uh, is it an adventure ride going over the Continental <laughs> Divide? Well, they actually have a very nice bus system in Argentina. Actually, a lot of South America has way nicer buses than what we have here in this country. They're super comfortable. A lot of them are double-deckers, so they have like a top level that you can sit up in these big, wide, comfy chairs. It's beautiful terrain and a gorgeous ride and some pretty windy roads, but the buses are actually quite reliable. That's good. Yeah, I, we visited Costa Rica. It was some time ago, but there were a lot of, uh, it impressed us with, we used the bus system a lot, and there were a lot of Mercedes-Benz buses that we rode in and they were they were very comfortable yeah and on time mm -hmm. so once you get to the ranch what is available for guests to do the main focus is definitely the horses we ride every day we offer as much riding as people want to do we have lots and lots of different trails there's a beautiful river that runs right down all through our land and down in front of the lodge. And so a lot of times we'll ride an hour or two to a spot along the river and then stop for a picnic and stop and swim and fish and picnic and then ride some more after. And then there's also a lot going on out there. We grow all of our own food or not all of it, but we grow a lot of our own food. And so uh, we have a whole staff of people from around the world that are out there. So the guests a lot of times kind of just get involved with what we have going on. It's not really separate. It's all kind of happening there so people can get involved in what, what we have going on, the garden. We have a blacksmith shop. So there's blacksmith going on. There's building projects. People like to kind of get involved with whatever we're doing. But really, the main thing is just being on horses pretty much most of the day, every day. Do you find that most people use the ranch as just a strictly a getaway, just to kind of take a break from all the nonsense going on in, in the world that we live in these days? And they just kind of, kind of yeah. turn it over to the ranch, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's definitely a, a big draw. And then just the opportunity to be around horses on such a deep level like that, where it's what it's what your transportation is. It's it's also a big part of the culture. We have a lot of the local people that live near the ranch ride through on their way to, you know, where they have their animals grazing or whatever. So you see a lot of the local gauchos riding through just kind of being around that horse culture is also a big draw. I noticed that you have Cristobal Scarpati hosting a horsemanship clinic in February. I've had him on the show a couple of times and have been to one of his clinics. They're fascinating to watch. Is this the first time Cristobal's been there? Yeah, we've actually met him uh, and been to one of his clinics here in California. And that was many 
years ago, and we've been uh, in communication with him since then, just trying to kind of work out the timing. We both he and and uh, and us have been trying to make a clinic happen for a bunch of years, but different things kind of got in the way, and this is the first time we're actually able to make it work. So we're all we're all very excited about that. And that's a, a very unique style of horsemanship that he practices. It's going, yeah. to be, it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of transposes into the type of culture that's already there in horsemanship, or are they very similar? No, the, the way that he, that, that Christo and Flor and his father do horsemanship is also quite unique in Argentina as well. The gauchos, the local kind of traditional gaucho way of training horses is much more like the old school cowboy style that, you know, here in the States, which is just uh, you know, breaking them basically. Right. So what Christo does is also very unusual in his own country as well. But I would say we've seen in the last bunch of years more and more openness, even among the really traditional gauchos, to kind of different ways of doing things and different approaches with the horses. They, when I was a kid, we would I would see some really really rough treatment of the horses by the gauchos, mm-hmm. and that kind of way of approaching horsemanship seemed to be deeply entrenched in that culture, but actually it's really started to shift. And now you don't see nearly that kind of treatment anymore. It's interesting when I first started doing this podcast a decade ago, you know, I thought a cowboy was a cowboy, but I've come to learn that, you know, there's the California style of horsemanship, then there's the cow punchers, and then there's the buckaroos, and they all kind of had to get the job done, but they all had a little bit different styles of doing it. And it's kind of interesting how they bleed over and how that can improve your horsemanship learning somebody else's style and kind of develop your own routine or incorporate it into your own program. So I think it's really, it's going to be a fun clinic, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it'll be really fun. And great too, because the location just being so isolated out there, we've done clinics before and it's, it's really great because you have everyone there and people aren't, you know, jumping in the car and driving off or, right. you know, down to the store or whatever. Everyone's just there. And so, you know, you're at the corral all day learning. And then at dinner, we're all sitting around, you know, talking about whatever we learned that day, asking questions. And so it's very immersive. It's, it's, it's really, I really like that aspect of doing the clinics down there. It's going to be very exciting, I'm sure. And you yeah. mentioned you have a whole staff and, and community and I understand that a lot of those people are volunteers. Uh, can you explain that program? So basically we have kind of our, the main areas of responsibility. We have paid staff, but then we bring in a bunch of different people who come from around the world to do a work trade where they'll come and either help work in the garden or help with the horses or help cooking or building or any of the many things that we need to do there. And so they'll come for three or four months during our summer months and work in exchange for place to live and food and getting to ride horses and getting to experience life out there. And we get great people because it's, you know, people who want to do that kind of thing, who want to live remotely and want to spend time with horses in that way are usually great folks. So we end up having really good crew of people usually, and uh, we have a lot of fun out there. 
and they come from all over the world. So we kind of get this really international mix. And how do they hear about it? Just from our website. Well, and we're also listed on a few of these international volunteer sites. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty uncommon in Argentina, at least, to be able to volunteer on a horse ranch. So when people search for that kind of thing, we, we come right up. And your season is, I think I read, December through the end of March? Yep, which are, you know, the main summer months down there. Is it just too cold down there right now to, to be doing Right now, um, yeah, very middle of winter. It's very hard to get in and out of where the lodge is. Mm-hmm. The passes get covered with snow. And then as the snow melts a little later in the spring, like in September, the river gets way too high to cross. And so we do have some local guys who have lived out there their whole lives. And they're there. They are there right now over the winter mm-hmm. caretaking and keeping an eye on the horses and stuff. But a lot of times they're kind of stuck out there for several weeks at a time, which they don't mind because they've lived there their whole lives and they have everything they need. But it's not really doable to run any kind of guest program during that season. Then in October, the river starts to get lower and everything starts to green up and it gets really nice. But the high mountains are still too high for doing pack trips or too too much snow for doing pack trips and stuff like that. So we just wait until full on summer to do it. So you mentioned the pack trip. So do you go out for extended period of time where you're away from the ranch for several days? Uh huh. Yeah, we have four day pack trips and then we have seven or six day pack trips. Yeah, what we do on those on the longer trips, we bring people in to the lodge, spend a couple nights at the lodge and doing a day ride and getting familiar with the horses and everything. And then we pack up a bunch of mules with a bunch of gear and ride out. And we follow one of the rivers all the way up to the border of Chile, which takes about three days of kind of following these rivers higher and higher up into the mountains. And then we climb out of the upper end of the river drainage onto a high ridge line and follow these high ridges uh, right along the border. And then we drop down to a beautiful valley that has a, a big lake on it. And we spend a couple nights there fishing, swimming in the lake, stuff like that. And then we ride back to the lodge on the final day and spend another couple nights there. Wow, very cool. What's the altitude of the ranch? It's not that high. The Andes where we are are not very high. So the lodge is at just under 4,000 feet. And then the highest point we go on the pack trip is like 7,500 feet, something like that. Wow, very cool. When people go to visit the ranch, what's a usual length of stay? I mean, if you're going to make that trek there, do you have a recommendation for that? Yeah. I mean, I I think a week is kind of a minimum for, yeah, for having traveled that far. And then once you get there, uh, there's a lot to see and a lot to do. So a week is a minimum. 10 days is seems to be really good. A lot of people come for 10 days. We've had people come for longer, but the longest time we generally have available is around 10 days. Oh, very cool. So you're way out in the wilderness. How do you get, but you have a nice lodge. So what about power, water, hot water, mm-hmm. things like that? Yeah. So our power comes from uh, little hydro turbines that spin. From, so we have a canal that brings water from a creek and then that water irrigates a bunch of pastures and then we collect it into a big collection pipe and run it down a hill. And then the pressure from that water spins these two little turbines and that produces our power, which is plenty for lights and freezer, washing machine, power tools, stuff like that. Yeah, okay. uh, 
Yeah. And then water, we have several springs that are uphill from the lodge. And so we have really good spring water coming out of all the tap. And what was the other one you asked about? Well, the electricity heats the water. So there there you have hot water. We heat water with these wood-fired hot water tanks. So it's actually... A, a tank that looks like a regular propane hot water tank like we have in our houses here, but you make a fire in the bottom part of it and there's a chimney that goes right up through the middle. And so it's super efficient. So every guest room has one of these tanks in there. And when guests are out on the rides, we'll go in and make a fire. And after about half an hour or 45 minutes, you have a full tank of hot water. And that's how we do heat all the water. That's really getting back down to it, I think. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of our cooking over fires, too. We have wood-fired ovens, and we cook over open fires a lot and stuff like that. And in investigating your website, you not only offer stays at the ranch, but I noticed something about Mongolian rides. Do, mm-hmm. do you host those yourself, or do you? how do those work? I started about 10 years ago running trips in Mongolia. I run two two-week trips in September every year. And I work with a local guy there who I've been working with from the beginning for for 10 years. And he runs logistics on that side of things. And we've just kind of partnered over the years to create these two trips, put together the the routes and the logistics and the whole kind of program for those trips. And it's an awesome country. It's, It's amazing horse country. So what do those trips entail? Well, the first one we go, well, we meet up in the capital, Ulaanbaatar, and then we go, we get on a flight and go up to the very northern part of the country, right up near the border with Russia. And we ride, we get on horses and we ride for a couple of days alongside this huge lake. And then we cross some mountains and ride over this big, beautiful kind of open plains surrounded by forest. And then the last couple of days we ride up into the forest and we visit with these reindeer herders that live way out in the taiga forest. And they have these big herds of reindeer that they ride and they milk and they them and everything. It's, they live in teepees. And so we go stay with them. Really, really nice people. And we get a chance to ride on the reindeer a little bit and drink reindeer milk, tea and stuff like that. It's quite amazing. That's very cool. And then the second trip, we fly out to Western Mongolia and we ride the, the first seven or eight days. We're riding through these big high mountains with camels packing all of our gear. And then we meet up with these eagle hunters and we ride for several days with eagle hunters, uh, actually with the eagles on their arms, uh, hunting, looking for foxes and also just practicing. They use the eagles for hunting foxes? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which they do ceremonially. So that they've been they've been doing it for you know many many generations. So whoever's the best eagle hunter catches the most foxes, and then they make these you know amazing robes and hats and full body clothes out of the fox hides. And so it's you know it's a status sign of how good of a hunter you are. But nowadays they have these these this big festival, the eagle hunting festival, where they go and they just have uh, all these competitions. And so when we're there, it's a couple weeks before for the festival and so they're practicing basically getting ready for the competitions and this will show my ignorance a little bit but i don't mind uh, how does an eagle take down a fox that- well these eagles are big they're they're golden eagles they are like a couple feet tall like if you have one standing on the ground they might be like two feet tall i don't know exactly but they're really big and they're big, heavy, strong birds. So what we do is we ride along the the ridge lines, all on the like the highest part of the ridges, which is fun because that's not normally the way you would ride through a landscape. Is just you know on these really rough 
tiger rages, but they're looking down and then the eagle hunters are kind of calling out making these loud sounds and the foxes will flush out from the hillside down below and then they the eagle has a little hood on they'll pop the hood off and they'll kind of show the eagle where the fox is and the eagle will take off and swoop down the hill and come down from behind the fox and then he just like pounce on them oh wow so yeah, it's pretty amazing, but there aren't that many foxes around. They these are they're pretty well hunted and so mostly we're doing a lot of riding. You don't see a lot of hunting, but they do a lot of practicing where they'll have one guy up on the ridge and then they'll have another guy way down below in the flats kind of running along and they'll they'll uh, the guy down below will call the eagle and the guy up on the ridge will take the hood off and let him go and he flies down and then lands on the other guy's arm at like a full gallop. And oh, that, that's amazing running along with them and yeah it, it's really it's really cool well the eagles have done their job they've they've taken care of all the foxes yeah exactly. <laughs> well it sounds like you're quite the adventurer thomas uh, what other types of things do you do for fun <laughs> well i love to just go backpacking i spent some years working in alaska as a pilot a backcountry pilot i used to work in utah as a survival instructor teaching wilderness survival and primitive living skills and stuff like that but nowadays, I also have a two-year-old, so I'm at home with with my boy when I'm not out leading these trips or, you know, out on pack trips and stuff. Very cool. Well, it's been fun talking with you. Thank you for sharing the information about Estancia Ranquilco and your other adventures. It sounds like a, just a wonderful place. If people want to find out more, where shall we send them? Our website is ranquilco.com r-a-n-q-u-i-l-c-o.com everything is there perfect thank you good talking to you that will do it for this episode thanks to tom carruthers for taking the time to talk about his ranch what a wonderful experience it would be to travel to argentina and see the countryside on horseback estancia ranquilco looks to be a wonderful place for an adventure and remember our friends Cristobal and Flor Scarpati will hold a clinic there in February of 2024. Or you could simply go and explore the 100,000 acres and rivers of Western Argentina. I'll have photos and links for the ranch on the episode page at woepodcast.com. If you have any comments about this show or suggestions for future guests, reach out to me. Email john at woepodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Woe Podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.